And I still haven't written a screenplay knowing that I was going to be directing it. It was the case of Molly's Game, Chicago 7, and now being the Ricardos, I wrote it not knowing I was going to be the director of it. I think if I had, if I was writing Chicago 7, knowing that I was going to direct it, I think I would have worked really hard to find a way to do it without the two riots. (laughs) Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. Today's episode takes us behind the scenes of director Aaron Sorkin's historical drama, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. The film recounts the infamous and unfair trial of seven political activists after a peaceful protest turned into a violent clash with the police at the 1968 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. In addition to The Trial of the Chicago Seven, Mr. Sorkin's directorial credits include 2017's DGA Award-nominated feature film, Molly's Game. Mr. Sorkin spoke with director David Fincher about filming The Trial of the Chicago Seven in front of a virtual audience. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Um, Aaron, thank you for uh, letting me do this. Uh, thank you for doing it, David. Uh, Great I, to see I, you. I hope it's not, I hope it's just the right amount of excruciating. Um, <laughs> But uh, but I want to I I I do want to I want to move this I want to try to cover as much ground as possible because you know I'm easily bored. But um, but I also want to give you uh, I, I but I I have things sort of subdivided in terms of you know just overall kind of progressions in 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 casting and production and post production. But I wanted okay. to start first. Um, I've always found your writing appealing personally um, in the same way that I always love Bill Goldman's. And, and the reason for that is you're a decidedly serious person um, who is actually writing comedies about really dramatic ventures that have real stakes. And, and the example that I have is like in Butch and Sundance where they're debating the different ways that the super posse um, might kill them. When he says, you know, they could go for position, they could start a rock slide, they could get us that way. What else could they do? I'm sure you know the next line, but it's- uh, I do know the next line. They could surrender, but yeah. (laughs) But I don't think we ought to count on that. Yeah. Um, Tell me about, um, and and that was a, it, it occurred to me on social network that that you were that you were doing this thing that the the the, the writing the the storytelling was ostensibly um, um, comic and 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 I don't mean that in a derogatory lightweight sense. Um, it was wildly entertaining in talking about things that were you know uh, truly dramatic. And is that a is that something that you're conscious of, or am I? Um, have I disappeared at my own? No, it is something that I, I'm conscious of. And by the way, um, uh, Bill Goldman mentored me beginning from my early 20s. You know, he passed away a few years ago, but he and I were uh, very close. And yes. actually, he was teaching me even before we met, uh, you know, with his with his screenplays, with his yeah. uh, a nonfiction. And then he uh, uh read my first play, which was A Few Good Men, and he saw something in me and he, he wanted to teach me how to write screenplays. But uh, yes, I, I always think, first of all, if you can tell a serious story funny, uh, you, you're, you're doing yourself uh, a big favor. 
Part of it, you know, might just come from a, an insecurity, uh, maybe a healthy insecurity of uh, comedy, drama. I am not good enough at uh, either of them to do only one of them. Uh, uh, so I kind of oh, have to mix up my pitches. <laughs> well, but are there other, I mean, obviously Goldman is one, but are there other um, heroes, uh, personal screenwriting heroes that you can um, uh, point to and sort of say, this is, this is something I got from them or their work. This is something that I, you know. Yeah. Certainly Patty Chayefsky. Uh, yeah. uh, the answer is, yeah, there are a number of screenwriters and Patty Chayefsky uh, uh, for a host of reasons, both Mankiewicz brothers. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Herman and Joseph. Uh, Billy Wilder. Sure. Um, there are things I get from uh, uh, contemporary screenwriters uh, as well. Tony Kushner, Quentin Tarantino, uh, and Mamet. Uh, so I'm uh, I'm I'm easily influenced, uh, and uh, uh, as a screenwriter, and now that uh, I've directed a couple of films, mm -hmm. uh, I really I try to be a diagnostician. Mm -hmm. um uh I, i'll watch you know i'll watch a film of yours um uh not necessarily the social network a, a, any of them um uh and uh, i'll love something uh and i'll try and reverse engineer it i will try to in my mind first of all figure out what it was i loved about it mm -hmm. uh and then try to figure out how you got there mm -hmm. um uh you know what what was the creative thought that you had? And then what were the instructions that you gave to get you there? Uh -huh. And, and it, do you ever, I mean, it, this is a, seems like an odd question, but I am actually curious. Do you, do, when you're looking at the pantheon of people who influenced you, you know, who, who informed um, how it is that you love movies, why it is that you love movies or cinematic storytelling, do you subdivide, um, directors and writer directors um i'm i'm not sure what you mean by subdivide do you I, do you think of them differently do you do you put them like do you like is billy wilder um, um a, a different thing to you than michael curtis or 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 george or hill a different thing to you than uh woody allen you know what i mean yes animals you know, yes just, yes and, and there are why, different things uh, there are there are, there are writer directors, for instance, uh, who uh, it's clear to me that they they have written a screenplay so that they can direct it. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, they don't want someone to write it for them. They don't want to wait around for someone to write it for them. I have this idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm putting it on paper and I'm a big shot director so I can get it made. Mm -hmm. uh, and and there are writer directors who I can tell have, they are writers and they're directing out of a defensive posture. They're directing because <laughs> they, they, they don't want a director to, uh, yeah. uh, to hurt the screenplay. I'm neither of those. Yeah. Um, uh, I've, uh, I, I, I've been hearing ever since I, I started writing movies, uh, you know, screenwriters talk about how they have to protect their screenplays and mm -hmm. and it, i i never like hearing that uh yeah. it first of all i'm thinking protected from whom 
Um, yeah. uh, uh, that director should be your best friend. Uh, yeah. uh, that that's your closest uh, uh, collaborator, mm-hmm. um, and hopefully ally. Uh, right. Yeah. Um, uh, yes. Yes. Of course. Hopefully, it's like the relationship that I have when I do a play uh, yeah. with the director. Yeah. Um, and then uh, Molly's game came along. I, I still haven't. I'm about to start directing my third film uh, yes. in a few weeks. We were just talking about it before we came on. And I still haven't written a screenplay knowing that I was going to be directing it. In the case of Molly's Game, Chicago 7, and now being the Ricardos, I wrote it not knowing I was going to be the director of it, which, by the way, I may have that may have been a lucky break uh, for me. Tell me uh, why. I think if I... I think if I had, if I was writing Chicago 7, knowing that I was going to direct it, I think I would have worked really hard to find a way to do it without the two riots. Um, because I was thinking, it's like, how do you how do you stage these, especially on our budget? How, how do you stage this? Well, um, you, did you have in mind, because I, I remember reading the script, and, and I don't recall whether or not there was, because the use of the actual footage, um, uh, and and how it was um, sort of uh, you folded into the melange um, um, really worked incredibly well. As um, you know, a lot of times when you when I look at you know, and I even when I look at something like JFK, which was from a form formal standpoint, you know, truly awesome. You know, the first experience of couldn't seeing, agree more seeing the Zapruder film kind of like, you know, hidden amongst all this other super eight and 16 millimeter footage of Dealey Plaza and, 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 but, but oftentimes um, the, uh, the restaging um, tends to feel like, um, it tends to feel like these two things are offered uh, to do the same thing or to blur the line between them. And what I loved about Chicago 7 was it seemed to me that the use of the real footage only only further kind of deepened the roots of or or the tap roots of, of the uncivility of it and 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 so in that in that way it was more potent to me than just seeing the footage or just seeing the recreation sorry well that's music to my ears uh and and here's why that you, you know, sort of famously now, it took 14 years uh, to get the film made. And, and, and one, of the big reasons, <laughs> one of the big reasons uh, were the two riot sequences, that they were budget busters, um, uh, that, you know, a film like Chicago 7 has to fit into a budget that the studio feels is proportional with the yeah. audience's appetite. In other words, there wasn't going to be a lot of money to make uh, Chicago sure. 7. Yeah. Um, and uh, year after year would uh, uh, would go by. Trump started running for president. He got elected president. And he was holding these rallies where there'd be a protester and he'd start getting nostalgic about the old days when we carry that Remember guy when? on a stretcher. I'd like to yeah. beat the crap out of him. Yeah. And uh, it was Steven Spielberg who said, okay, the time to make the movie is now. By yeah, then yeah. I had directed... Uh, Molly's game. I directed yeah. my first film. He was sufficiently pleased with that that he thought I should direct Chicago Seven, and he said, "And now the riots are your problem." Um, so 
with, uh, I can't give enough credit to our DP Faden Papa Michael and our editor, Alan Baumgarten. The lucky break that we caught was that we were able to shoot it in Grant Park and on Michigan Avenue where the riots actually took place, which meant that we would be able to use uh, archival yeah. footage. Um, so I just, I came up with a plan and, uh, I don't know if you found this or if you've ever had to find this because, um, you know what? I, I, I don't get a David Fincher schedule, uh, or a David <laughs> Fincher budget. Uh, you can't most, you most of us. without asking. <laughs> <laughs> but go uh, ahead. I have found, um, that, uh, First of all, when you're doing something, when you're making a creative choice because of a budgetary necessity, mm -hmm. uh, you want to make it seem like that was going to be the choice you'd have made if you had an unlimited budget, right? I agree, yeah. Um, it felt like that. And that I find that a constraint like that forces you to get creative. Mm -hmm. It forces you to have an idea. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, I'm not going to be able to pull back on a crane and show thousands and thousands of people uh, in this park, uh, like the way you would shoot a sandal and sand battle scene, you know? <laughs> um, so after looking through hours and hours and hours of what the archival footage was, and I also couldn't just use the archival footage because A, right. it wouldn't be very interesting, right. uh, and B, where are our characters? Right. Uh, right. Our characters are in these scenes. So I came up with this plan, which uh, or I, we came up with this plan, which involved we were going to get a few wide shots and we were going to take advantage of the tear gas. Mm -hmm. uh, all right. So we've got smoke everywhere that if I if we shoot light through smoke mm -hmm. um, and I'm someone who's like just discovered what happens when you shoot light through smoke. <laughs> so I wanted smoke in every scene. I could not get enough smoke. It wouldn't well, matter you, where we were. You okay? know, they're finding now that um, atomized smoke or atomized whatever that glycol stuff is actually good for COVID. So smoke is making a big comeback. Oh, that is excellent. Yes. That's a twofer. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, we could have been in Attorney General John Mitchell's office. I was asking <laughs> smoke. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, we're going to get a few wide shots using the smoke as cover uh, and let the audience's imagination, they were going to see what's happening on the periphery of the smoke, people getting their heads uh, uh, cracked open. And we were just going to show enough kind of arms and legs and movement that our imaginations were going to fill in mm -hmm. what was behind the rest of the smoke. And then the rest was going to be very very tight shots of mm -hmm. eyes right before a club hit mm -hmm. of, of mm -hmm. uh, blood bursting out of a tear gas canister you're just gonna go potemkin wild yes that's yes uh, yeah, like any card carrying member of the gga you would you would just go potemkin wild with some smoke in the bg it's listen this smoke thing it's <laughs> it is my best friend uh okay <laughs> Um, you know and, that um, there's that one. I'm sorry, but once we then mix that in the cocktail with the archival footage, archival footage at just the right moment, um, uh, it was really working. Uh, and then Stephen was the one who came along and said, uh, desaturate that, um, put it in black and white, the archival yeah. footage, yeah. Uh, which made a lot of sense. We didn't want to be pretending that the archival footage was uh, right. was ours.
uh, and and there it was. Ah, there's that moment. There's the um, there's the great uh, New York sequence in, in Butch Cassidy that had the same issues because they were supposed to shoot this whole montage, and then and they were going to shoot on the uh, the Hello Dolly the set that they had built uh, at Fox and they wouldn't let them at the last minute. So they did it all with stills. Hang on. Yeah. Because I, until this very second, thought I knew everything there was to know about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. The, the whole That sequence... New York section was not supposed to be stills? Yeah. It was, it was originally, they're supposed to shoot on the Hello Dolly set. And they were at the last minute, they were, uh, they decided because the release date had been moved that they didn't want people to see that set. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. What I did know is that when Bill was researching the thing, which back then you did by going to the New York Public Library. Yes. Um, uh, so he's researching Butch and Sundance and uh, writers talk about uh, having a secret. Yeah, uh, having something in their pocket uh, that they can bring out at just the right moment. And when Bill found out that the Sundance kid couldn't swim, <laughs> yeah, all I have to do is get him <laughs> to the edge of that cliff. No, <laughs> I've got a scene. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Okay, so um, um, so this originally started as I mean I know you've told this before, but I would like for the people for the uninitiated this started as a um as a gig that you were going to solve a problem for um uh it was amblin or dreamworks or they it was you know what i'll be honest with you I, i'm never sure what the difference is between amblin okay. and dreamworks it was steven there's um, synergy there's synergy yes there. that's why you can't tell in 2000 and <laughs> 2004 i was summoned to steven spielberg's house on a saturday morning which just to be clear, isn't common. I don't <laughs> hang with Steven. We don't watch college football together. No kidding. Yeah. Play PlayStation, you don't. He said uh, that he wanted to make a movie about the Chicago Seven. And I said, that sounds great. Count me in, I'm your guy. Uh, left his house and called my father and asked him who the Chicago Seven were. And said, Chicago Seven, that's like the Bulls before Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, who are we talking about? It's a cricket team. Um, <laughs> uh, I was saying yes to doing a movie with uh, with Stephen. Um, no, and no then, dummy, Aaron Sorkin said yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it, it took, uh, there was a lot of research to do. There were a dozen or so good books written about them, some of them by the defendants. There's mm -hmm. a 21,000 page trial transcript. But most critically, I got to spend time with Tom Hayden, who was alive yeah. at the time. He's no longer alive. Yes. Uh, and it was from Tom that I was able to get. Uh, you know, the personal tension between Tom and Abby. And so the the film organized itself into three stories that I was gonna tell at once. The courtroom drama, the uh, the evolution of the riot, how did what was supposed to be a peaceful protest turn into yeah. such a violent clash with police and the National Guard. And then the third more personal story uh, about these two guys, Tom and Abby, uh, who are on the same side but plainly can't stand each other and yeah. each thinks that the other is doing harm to the cause. Yeah, beautiful. Um, to, for now, when I read the script years ago, uh, and, and it's funny because I didn't, because I read it and I appreciated it, but I honestly didn't recall the ending until, well, as I was watching it, until I got to it, until I got to the reading of the names. 
And, and, and I thought, I, I'm not even sure if I had, if I had read it, that it would have occupied the same place in, in my appreciation that it did when I finally saw it, you know, it kind of gives you chills. You kind of go, this is such a simple way to end this whole story. It's such a beautiful, and yet the kind of confidence that it takes to say, we're building to this thing. And then the guy's just going to start reading this list of right. Like, did, 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 I mean, you know, there are days when, when we show up for work and we go, oh God, please, like, you know, I hope this comes together. Did, did you have that with that? Or were you, did you just know? I did have it uh, uh, with that. You know, I'm not sure uh, uh, which draft of the script you read. It, it was a long time be before, yeah. and there were many, many drafts of the script, yeah. all of which had potential. You know, you read all of them and say, there's a movie in here, uh, yeah. uh, it needs script work. Yeah. Um, uh, but but that, then, there was always the ending. There was always the ending. Um, uh, and, and that's I how it actually, there was any of that embellished or, or was it, um, was- No, that just, happened. It's just, just to, that it didn't happen on the day of the sentencing. Okay. Uh, uh, so I put it there. Yeah. Uh, what I had imagined, I told everyone um, uh, that, that I, I didn't want the movie to be about, I wanted the movie to be about today and not about 1968. And this was before I knew how much about today it, it was going to be, right? This yeah. was before the riots broke out in Minneapolis and Kenosha and Portland and, yeah. and the protesters were met by riot yeah. sticks and tear gas. Right. Um, certainly before Donald Trump went and committed the exact crime that the Chicago 7 were on trial for. <laughs> uh, uh, so I told everybody, we're not going to lean into the 60s, uh, right. okay? We're not going to flood the frame with a psychedelic aesthetic, uh, and it's not going to be the '60s protest soundtrack. Okay, we're not going to hear "Fortunate <laughs> Son" and "Sympathy for the Devil." In fact, we're not going to use any. Uh, uh, come on, um, anything for the Forrest source Gump. music. Yeah, we're not use any source music. Yeah, it's going to be all original score, and it's going to be a big orchestral score. Daniel Pemberton uh, wrote the score. It's going to be a, a film score. Mm -hmm. except for the end, except for that moment yeah. uh, that you're talking about when I said, we're going to do, I'm going to find someone to do a great cover of Here Comes the Sun. Right. Um, and we're going to feel exactly the way uh, I want us to feel. We're going to feel like we did when yeah. Biden, most of us felt when Biden was uh, uh, sworn in. Yeah. And we got to that moment uh, in the editing room and it didn't work at all. And it's not just that moment that didn't work. It was the scene that didn't work, which meant the film didn't work. It's the last scene in the movie. And you were left feeling nothing uh, after all this. And it's, that is, that's scary. It's one yeah. thing to go in at the beginning of post and look at the editor's assembly and say, my God, did, did I do anything right? <laughs> it's another to get to the end and like your, Thing that you've had like for years you knew you were right. going to do this and you're going to have this great cover of here comes the sun and we're there's going to be a lump in our throat yeah uh and it didn't happen uh so i went back to daniel pemberton and i told him early on you're not going to get to write the last cue uh, of the movie composers want to do that you're not yeah. going to get to write they the last cue movie because it's going to be they feel a little protective of that 
strange. I, I, I get it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like if you said to me, you're not going to get to write the last scene of the film. I'm just going to wing it. <laughs> yeah. No, by that point, like if it's not, if it's not organic to how the dog. That's right. Going, if it's. <laughs> Yeah, then, then you've wasted everyone's time up until that. I went back to Daniel Pemberton and I said, I need you to write something better than the Beatles. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm not and, kidding. And I know uh, how, how little you think of the Beatles and their, and their, and their discography. And that, that's right. Um, and he did it. He, he wrote the right cue. Um, uh, I was able to play him a uh, uh an alexander desplat uh a cue that i thought did the trick the vibe. um and you Amen. when you get off of this you're going to think about it for a minute and you're going to realize what cue it is i um, i i don't is, know okay it's okay. fair enough all right um uh, but but it wasn't it was not musical plagiarism it, it, okay. it no, inspired no, him no, to no, write the cue course, that he wrote but that is how that that's how you got ended that. up working okay so i want to go into casting a little bit because you do have a spectacular ensemble and um yeah. but i but i now I, does it change does it frame um the task at hand for you in casting when you know w when it's molly's game you know it starts with molly and it starts with molly's dad and then it starts mm -hmm. with her attorney and then you know you you kind of have like when you're putting that team together you're going okay i've got to have a center and i've got to have a point guard and i have but when you're doing something you know the chicago seven and you know you know i mean kunstler is going to be like that is we'll get to him in a second but but um do you do, do you approach the casting of something like that differently? Do you are you sort of waiting to see three or four or five faces before you kind of go, okay, now I know how to populate the rest of this world? Or in a couple of cases, when Mark Ryland says he wants to play counselor, I don't need to look at any more faces. I I he, I he will play counselor. I, I I have that as a um, who uh, came up with Mark Ryland because it's so good. Uh, I did one of these. Let's look. Let's let Mark Mark Rylands pass, and when he passes, we'll talk about really? it. Really? So, yeah. So you sent it to him and said, "What do you think?" And he said, I'm "Yeah." Um, uh, you know, I sent it to him with a note saying, uh, "We'll be shooting all of your scenes in New Jersey in January and February, and we're going to be what? paying you in coupons." And what every <laughs> actor wants to hear. Yeah. No, uh, the first person cast was Sasha, yeah, because Stephen cast Sasha, you know, twelve years ago. Wow! And when Sasha heard that this was happening again, he got in touch with me to make clear that the part was still his. Yeah, uh, he hasn't given it up, and I won't yeah. be looking at any other actors for that. It's so interesting to me because I actually know Sasha um, um, personally pretty well, and and. I had, and it's funny because whenever I think of Abby Hoffman, you know, I, 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 I see someone sort of the bull in the China shop. You see someone sort of careening through like friends, enemies, whatever, countrymen. He's just, he's, you know, he's all elbows and he's, and he's mm -hmm. saying it's both feet in, in, you know, in talking out of the side of one of one side of his mouth. So I was so, when, when I heard Sasha, because what I know about Sasha, and this is something that very 
you know, I, I know you now have this experience with him. He's so deft and specific and, and he's such an intellect about the things that he's doing. He's so thoughtful. I mean, even, and by the way, did he ever show you, the, did he ever show you the makeup test of him as Freddie Mercury? No, I would love to see that. Dude. I would love to see you that. You have to see these, these photos are spectacular anyway but i but it was so weird for me because you I, you know i don't really think of borat as being that far from um, from abby but i don't think of him as borat i think of borat as a as a and he is so quiet and thoughtful and he chooses his word so specifically that you know i mean i'd always seen you know some version of uh, 30 year old you know, Cliff Gorman, and then, you know, may he rest in peace. But, right. but, but to see um, Sasha do this, what, at first I was really nervous. And then I just, I found him to be so winning. And so. Um, I was nervous too, not just about Sasha. I was nervous yeah. about everything, but, yeah. um, you know, for the first couple of weeks of shooting uh, for Sasha, it was kind of marching down the street and chanting. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, we hadn't gotten to, to much hard work yet. Yeah. Uh, and then we got into the courtroom and everybody had the day circled on their calendar when, when we were shooting his testimony, uh, yeah. on the stand. Yeah. Um, and I knew what people like the producers, um, uh, were concerned about, uh, in a scene where you have to be dead serious, quiet. Yeah. simple and simple yeah. and honest okay yeah. can sasha swing that back um yeah. uh, can he yeah. do that the answer is yeah he oh, damn yeah. well can yeah. um uh, yes. uh, he absolutely can now he, he i did notice against it i i did notice that you have more than 40 producers on this film mm -hmm. um so uh did, was there any aspect of you that wanted to just hand out tie-dyed t-shirts and use them as extras in your life <laughs> like is there did you just uh, first of all i did not know you have how more many producers teamsters um, you have more you have more producers than you have teamsters and a movie that shot in in jersey uh, mostly in Jersey, yes. Yeah. Um, have a movie that has It more was not until I saw the, the final cut, okay? I mean, the final Netflix had a um, a drive-in premiere yeah. for us at the, yeah, in yeah. the parking lot at the Rose Bowl. Uh, and so I was looking at like the cut the day before we were showing it there. It's not like there yeah. were any more notes to give. We, we yeah. couldn't make any changes. But they did have the full credit sequence in, and they wanted me to to look at it. Um, exactly. So I did, and I couldn't believe my eyes. There was one card that had sixteen names on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but and I'm sure that everybody, by the way, uh, did play a, a job. Everybody uh, showed up an, I mean, an important it, role in uh, in getting the movie on, and I'm grateful to each and every one of them, David. <laughs> okay. I am. Okay. Um, okay, sidebar, how much do you love John Carroll Lynch? Like, is he... Oh, as uh, as much, the maximum amount. Yeah, um, exactly. 11 to 11. Yeah, um, uh, because really he's great. Um, uh, uh, he, he's great on every take, and he's just... Uh, he's a joy to spend a, a long day of work with. And he's always listening. 
He's always mm-hmm. listening to like anything that your conversation that you're having with somebody else. He's sitting, he's up and, and then he'll overhear stuff and go, does that apply to me? And it's like, no, no, that this is very, it's always like, he's always. The same thing is true when the camera is rolling. Yeah. And in the courtroom, uh, I mean, a, a lot of the drama in the courtroom, really, really, except for Abby's testimony mm-hmm. and Michael Keaton's testimony, uh, what we're interested in when a witness is on the stand is the, uh, our guy's reaction uh, uh, to yeah. it. So the coverage uh, yeah. uh, in the courtroom uh, was going to be important. It was days of coverage. Um, and one of the things that I was concerned about are, you know, listen, most of these guys are, are used to starring in their own movies. Yeah. Um, uh, every day is their big scene. Yeah. Uh, they're not used to uh, uh, you know, waiting four days and then they have a line. Yeah. Um, that was but, Rashida and Social Network. You know, it was like, you're going to do 18 days and then you're finally going to have some, you know, in you're basically in the background for exactly right. But how important or, was Rashida in the Social Network? Well, and right? then you get to the scene where you need Rashida and then you go, oh my God, like she comes out of the wings, takes center stage, a spotlight comes yes. on, she kills it, mic drop, and you're done. So all these guys were, yeah. uh, you know, they, they, they like to pass as much as they like to shoot. I love Kelvin Harrison, the guy who played Fred Hampton. He's, Me too. Ew, he's so, um, he's so easy. And so um, it's so watchable and yet um, not distracting. You know what I mean? And that's yeah. such a, there's so often that, you know, actors are trying to be seen and, um, and you go, no, I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to see all this Sturm and Drang happening right now. I just want to see enough of it that I go, oh, there's still antipathy over there by the by the uh, bank. That's app. right. Um, I love Michael Keaton, and and he's tough. He's tough to in in to my way of thinking because he has that sort of subcutaneous burn thing. It's like if if you if you're not using that, then. um, you're you're wasting Michael and I just thought the way he comes into the movie the way that he delivers his and then finally his scene on on the stand it's just like it's so ruthlessly efficient in terms of I know he'd be thrilled to hear you say that I am I mean he's great Uh, Michael by the way was one of these guys who just raised his hand and said um do you have anyone to play Ramsey Clark yet uh and really uh, it's like um, in uh, uh, Jackie Brown, right? I mean, he just has uh-huh, like, yeah. like, like there are those moments where he does stuff and you just, go, he, for a guy who can take center stage and take all the attention, he can, he can be part of an ensemble in a really meaningful way. I think that one of the things uh, Michael has going for him is the fact that he he was a, he was a superstar, right? Then went away for a while, and then Birdman, and he's back. Yeah. Um, he's back with a kind of gravitas of yeah. I've had the near death experience. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I yeah, he's great. Yeah. We, were, we were lucky to have him and. Uh, and Frank Langella, uh, yeah. who my meeting with Frank, uh, the first time I saw Frank Langella, I saw him play Dracula on Broadway. Okay. Yeah. And I was I a kid. That. 
a minute before the cameras started rolling on any take where there was confrontation between the police mm-hmm. and protesters, including Jeremy, he would have an off-duty cop beat the crap out of him. I mean it, not pretend to. Lift him up in the air and throw him down on the ground and really rough him up and, and like, you know, twist his arms behind him and really, really get physical uh, uh, with him. And that pumped Jeremy up for a take that was going to last three seconds, uh, okay? It was going to be a shot <laughs> where it's like Jeremy in soft focus, just going free Tom Hayden and cut. That was going to be it. That's what yeah. they needed. Going, um, I, for litigious reasons, we need to curtail some of this. I, I, make sure I know that, that now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk about... Uh, so I, more than most, know the pitfalls of people trying to make Sorkinese their own. And uh, the joy of this particular patois is the accretion of meaning as the speaker makes his way to his point. And the gift that this process of thinking aloud provides the audience in the film. Are, were there, are there any doubters any longer? Are there still people who like insist on saying, no, no, I can, I can take what you've given me, but I need to give it my own special top spin. I'm certain there are plenty of doubters, but I have not met them or cast <sighs> them in, uh, in the in film. forever. Um, even look, even Sasha, uh, yeah. who was you know a more gifted improviser, you're not going to meet in the world. No, right? he's fantastic. Yeah, um, ask Rudy. Und- <laughs> understood that if he started ad-libbing, it would start to sound like he was in a different movie uh, all of a sudden. So what would happen is I'd get back to my hotel at night um, uh, after we'd wrap for the day. Uh, There'd be an email from Sasha with an Abby quote that he just found saying, you know, is there any way we can get this in here? And I'd always tell him the same thing. It's, it's a, it's a great quote. It really is. But, you know, we're not doing the best of Abby Hoffman. And yeah. Yeah. We have to keep the story moving forward. Listen, if Abby had real wit, like we'd use that stuff. But, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Abby Hoffman was a funny guy. Um, okay. uh, Abby Hoffman was sometimes funny. And yeah. I, I, I listen, I, I can argue both Abby and Tom's case. Yeah, uh, I, I can stand by Tom's argument that by making a buffoon uh, out of yourself and the rest of us, uh, you are harming this cause for decades to come. Yeah, I agree. I can make Abby's case too. Well, and I, what I think is so relevant is the fact that when you see Abby, he's at the hungry eye (laughs) and you're going, and you, I mean, it puts it in the, in the, it puts it in Hayden's perspective, which is, you know, look, there's, there's, swaying public opinion, you know, one drunken reveler at a time. But this is not a this is not a serious enclave for serious discussion of 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 these real issues. And therefore, we risk it being seen as something, you know, vaguely dilettantish and and right. And I'm sure that Abby and Abby supporters Mm -hmm. would say to you that Abby took time off the war, Um, uh, that the war ended earlier because of Abby. And I think that if Tom Hayden heard someone say that, 
you'd say you're out of your mind. He didn't take one minute off that war. Interesting. Even, even, I mean, when you were doing the, I mean, Hayden died in about three years ago, four years ago, 2017, something like that. Right. So did they ever, I mean, obviously they buried the hatchet or they, you know, the, the, the effect of what they had gone through together left them. It uh, did. But also remember, first of all, not long after this all ended, Abby had to go underground yeah. uh, for about five years for other charges. Yeah. Um, and that Abby had undiagnosed or undiagnosable at the time bipolar disorder. Well, explains a lot. Yes. Um, do you have, um, in terms of, in terms of projects that you pick or that you do, you ever take into account your filmography? Do you ever, do you ever look at things like, well, I don't know. I mean, I can't. I, is that is that too too much in the biopic realm? Or should I stay? Or you know, like. Uh, uh, will you now curtail any and all courtroom dramas for <laughs> no i won't um uh, first of all i love courtroom dramas and if if all i ever did for the rest of my life were courtroom dramas i'd be a, a happy guy um i don't uh when i decide okay this is gonna be my next project which is a courtship that that takes me a while to um uh, there have been times look the social network I read a four-page summary of what happened, and I did, without really knowing what the movie was going to be about, I I knew I wanted in, um, uh, that there was a story here. But one of the things that was drawing me to it was I was picturing dual depositions. Uh, So there was a courtroom drama-y aspect to it. But in terms of, uh, you know, do I think about my filmography? Well, you know what I mean? I, yeah, I know. I do know what you mean. It's... There's a sense, I think that, you know, especially, you know, like there's a sense now that if you if you're not releasing a movie in summer, then you're Oscar baiting. Right. You know, and, and right. I know you and I don't think in terms of, oh, well, we've got to have something ready for the end of the year for that, you know, for, for that. Prompt. That's right. And, and, and I also wonder on the other side, because I never, I can't, you know, if I, I can't tell you how many times I've stamped my little foot saying no more serial killers only to go, hmm, mine under that's sort of interesting. And, <laughs> and, and, and then the, the windfall of scorn that goes with it. But, uh, but, it's, but it's, do, it's, you, do you like, um, do you, it's more like this. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it, Every uh, baseball player, every hitter has their pitch, okay? Their pitch that they love. Low and outside, high and inside, a hanging curveball, uh, a change of their pitch. Uh, in the, I found this out during Moneyball. In the course of uh, a, a baseball game, uh, the average hitter is going to see 14-point-something pitches, Okay. And out of that 14 point something pitches, one point something is going to be his pitch. Okay. Um, so when he sees. And you don't want to swing and miss at your pitch. Okay. That's why sometimes, you know, you see a batter, uh, a strikeout or, or, or ground out, 
they're not thrilled with it, but they walk back to the dugout. They dugout. They get it. Most of the time, they're going to get out. And then sometimes they break the bat over their head, and it's yeah. because they got out on their pitch. Yeah. Um, I'm looking for my for a good pitch to hit. I, I I'm thinking, do I have a chance? Uh, to write, and then if I'm going to direct it, make uh, a good movie. A chance uh, is all I'm looking for. Right. Um, uh, and if the answer is yes, it's not likely I'm not going to do it, even if it right. like is is literally called the social network. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you do you um, predict a future where um, there are where oh, every coffee table in your house is littered with untitled Aaron Sorkin fall project? Or- <laughs> Are you are you um, considering um, writing for the rest of us or? I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't want to make you uncomfortable. I just know that there's, you know, at least 50 members of the DJ who are probably going, oh, please, oh, please. I let I will say again, um, uh, well, let me say this and then I think we are. I'm afraid we're out of time. Uh, <laughs> I've directed twice now, uh, and I have enjoyed it. Really? I've I've enjoyed it. And I think that my second time, I was better than my first time. Uh, I uh, I think uh, uh, that I learned. And obviously, we haven't gone into this, but... but It's it's many, many degrees of uh, complexity, more confounding that you were able to make this leap so deftly. You know what I mean? It is What you did this time around is... It's it is not easy having done well, that. I appreciate that. And David, um, you know, standing next to you uh, for however many months making a film, you really have to not be paying attention not to learn something. Did you, uh, did you, you shoot know. a lot of takes? I just. No, because I don't have a Fincher schedule. OK, <laughs> when I have it, I have to go on. I have to move on. Um, uh, uh, you go 70 takes past when you no, have it. And no, I'm thrilled oh. about that because what you do is you're able to simulate a preview period uh, uh, that a play would have. Um, uh, you're able to get the actors, Jesse and Rooney, uh, in the first scene to casualize the language. So it's I not still so have that email. I still have that email from you. Where I, what's where the email? Where you said, with the email where you wrote uh, after, we shot the, after we shot the opening scene of... Um, social network because there were so many people going well, we're still doing we're still doing we're because we I because we had shot 54 takes or whatever of the first two camera simultaneous so looking opposite direction so it was a very very tricky thing to get there but I remember you um in, in the in the rehearsal I mean the, the rehearsal in the conference room and then the rehearsal on the set the day an hour and a half before we started lighting and doing all that but you said, I see what it is that you're doing. I understand, I can see these m- micro shifts in the way that the that these very young people are able yes. to um, feel like they fit, like they're relate, they developed a relationship over the first four hours of that shoot day that was incredibly important to that opening scene. It um, was, and, and just the, the sheer repetition of the language of an eight and a half page scene uh, with pretty dense language, again, allowed them to casualize it so that they were tossing it off like they were reciting their phone number. Um, and and it was fantastic. I don't have that 
much room to work with. So I have to find other ways to simulate you that have preview period. I have to get them to casualize the language too. Is <laughs> like, there any time that you just said, look, I'm going to cut 10 producers loose and shoot for another three days. <laughs> there, no, there's no point in. I did not know about the number of producers until, <laughs> until the day before the I, Rose Bowl premiere. I am, I am, I'm not here to, uh, uh, I'm not here to judge. No, I just thought it was amusing when I saw it. Cause I, cause I remember, I, I, I guess the first time I saw it, was on Netflix in preview before they had the credits on because I hadn't seen the credits. That's right. So, yes, yeah. I sent it to you. I gave you yes. a... Yeah. And so I didn't know. And then when I saw it again, because I was making my little list of questions and I was watching and I was like, holy God. Anyway, um, nothing against producers. Everyone needs oversight. Me especially. Yes. And, and I just, again, want to say that all of the producers on Chicago 7... No, there's there's not a moment that you fantastic don't the effect and, of yeah. their imprimatur uh aaron thank you i know it's 353 no and kidding i know you hate this kind of thing i love talking to you no I, but it's a big uh, what i want to say is it's a big deal no. for me to have this conversation with you it is my honor and pleasure and i get to do it next week indeed well yeah. hope unless i get hit by space junk um okay i don't see it happening thanks a lot man okay great thank you sir take it easy Thanks again for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more, The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned in the coming weeks as we bring you discussions of films from John Lee Hancock, Fisher Stevens, and George C. Wolfe. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally.